Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. You know, before Eastern, particularly Indian, philosophical and religious concepts were popularized in the West, there weren't many allowable options for how a person might recognize the connection between mind and body or how one might meditate or get in touch with the deeper aspects of self, and certainly no concepts at all about divine self. But even though the real explosion of popularity of Vedic concepts occurred in the 1960s, people like Ralph Waldo Emerson and Walt Whitman were way ahead of the game as they subscribed to some of these concepts. Today, we want to learn more about this shift in consciousness, how it came about, and what impact it's had. And Philip Goldberg, author of American Veda, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, is going to tell us all about it. This shift has enlarged our understanding of mind and body and is still dramatically changing how we even see ourselves. Philip Goldberg has been studying India's spiritual traditions for more than 40 years as both a practitioner and an author. He's the author or co-author of 19 books, including Road Signs on the Spiritual Path, and his latest and our subject today, American Veda, From Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West, which was named one of the top ten religious books of the year by both Huffington Post and American Library Association's book list. A public speaker and workshop leader, he has given presentations at venues throughout the country and has appeared in national media. He's an ordained interfaith minister and spiritual counselor and recently founded Spiritual Wellness and Healing Associates in Los Angeles. He blogs regularly on the Huffington Post and Elephant Journal. His websites are www.americanveda.com and www.philipgoldberg.com. So we're going to be launching right into this. Welcome, Philip, to our show. I'm so glad to have you today. Thanks, Andrea. It's good to be with you. You have taken on an immense topic this uh, this whole influence of eastern religion on western philosophy and society in general what made you decide to write this book well as you said in in your um, introduction i've been at this for over 40 years on a personal level and you know back as a as a child of the 60s when i was a seeker and the teachings of india uh, transformed my life for the better. Uh, I then saw it do the same for great many other people, people who took up meditation and yoga and went to ashrams and had gurus and, you know, one way or another were influenced by these teachings. And uh, then I began to realize uh, how much it was affecting the culture as a whole, not just you know, isolated individuals. It was affecting psychology. It was affecting medicine. It was ex- affecting uh, academia, how we understand religion, how we practice our spirituality. It, ha- it had this sort of pervasive impact over time. And I thought this is a, a cultural phenomenon that needs to be uh, documented. And so, you know, that gave rise to uh, wanting to do the book. Wonderful. I'm real glad you did. It's a great read for the listening audience. I really, it was, it's an easy read. It's not, uh, so academic that you can't get it, but it really does explore our modern culture as well as, uh, how Vedic traditions have been passed over to us. So I would encourage you to read it. 
So what I love most, uh, Phil, about Vedic traditions is that they lead us directly to our own souls, whereas it seems to me, and you can certainly t- correct me if I'm wrong, it seems to me that Western traditions, traditions lead us to something outside of ourselves. Is that true, you think? Well, yeah. I mean, it's easy to overgeneralize because there's, sure. you know, strains of uh, both tendencies in the East and the West. But over uh, the long haul and in, in general, you're, you're right. The emphasis uh, in the East was the reverse of the emphasis in the West in, in, in religious context, whereas the Western religions emphasized uh, uh, beliefs and loyalty to a tradition and historical uh, events, presumed to be historical, uh, and um, that kind of out-of-directed uh, quality, the traditions of the East have always made those things secondary, and the inner experience of the divine, of the divine within, uh, and the union of the individual soul and the uh, universal spirit, you could say, or God, or whatever language you use, uh, that's always been the top priority, and a sort of science uh, developed around that, uh, that is uh, sort of so universal that it was able to be imported by the West uh, in both a spiritual context for people who were inclined in that direction, and also a secular context, so that a lot of the disciplines and practices of the East, like meditation and yoga, could be understood in either spiritual terms or secular terms as a kind of scientific approach to human development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does lend itself easily to that, doesn't it? It's not as... We, we, uh, I mean, in my field in particular, I'm, of course, I'm a transpersonal therapist now, but many years ago, uh, when I first started into practice, uh, we weren't allowed to talk about religion and we weren't allowed to talk about spirituality at all. And, uh, back in the early 1990s, that, uh, began to shift and change and, and, uh, there was some definite people in, instrumental in that shift, but we, we now are able to not influence our clients for sure. Don't want to do that, but really to allow them to explore that in within the, you know, in our, in our offices. So, uh, you know, I've definitely seen it in my practice. And well, and, and you it's... can you can thank the traditions of the East for that because yes. you know it. What you said, uh, you you know, sort of got institutionalized in the nineties. The, the beginnings of that go back to the 1950s and 60s with people like uh, Abraham Maslow and, and other pioneers of a self-actualization theory and human potential movement and uh, the beginning of humanistic and transpersonal psychology. All those pioneers, including Maslow, were strongly affected by the teachings of, uh, of the East, what we think of as Buddhism and Hinduism. Yeah, and you mentioned Carl Jung in the book and his influence. He certainly explored Eastern religions and has had a tremendous impact on on us in terms of psychological understanding of who we are, the theory of the self, and things like that. So, yeah. 
Yeah, and he was, of course, he's not American, and I focused on, on, on the impact on America, but he was, as you say, very extremely influential, uh, including on the very people I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, okay, so it obviously matters that uh, we've had some Indian and Vedic influence on America, but uh, what, in terms of where we're sort of going as a nation what what difference does this make to us <laughs> well on an individual level it has expanded and continues to expand the repertory of choices that people have in in cultivating their own potential and pursuing their own spiritual lives and destinies it's opened up a tremendous range of choices to us uh, on the collective level, uh, and I, I, I document this, I think, in, in the beginning of, of American Veda, uh, you can see a distinct shift in how America, Americans in general, uh, their attitudes toward religion and the way they engage their own spirituality over the last 30 to 40, 50 years, and you can trace those changes directly to the impact, especially beginning in the 60s, of uh, this integration of East and West that uh, was first embraced by the baby boomers and then their children and their children's children toward a more sort of experiential form of religion and perhaps most importantly in a cultural sense, toward a great acceptance and um, respect for the variety of spiritual choices and uh, approaches to spiritual development. You know this phenomenon of people calling themselves spiritual but not religious? Mm-hmm. Which, you know, and we should also include there are many people who call themselves spiritual and religious. But, you know, that's the fastest growing category in American religion. And I don't think it would be possible to pursue something like spirituality or seriously, engage it in a serious way outside of conventional religious life or a commitment to one particular religion. Uh, if it weren't for this uh, influence from from the East. Yeah, I agree with that totally, yes. Well, okay, you talked about the, the baby boomers. Let's let's go back before that. You talk about Emerson and Thoreau and Whitman and uh, several other people. Uh, and we'll talk about some of those others as well. Being influenced by Indian uh, and Vedic theor- uh, philosophy. So how did that happen? Well, it, it, in Emerson's case, and he's the sort of forerunner of all this, uh, he, he was, as a young boy, his fa- uh, in Boston in the early 19th century, uh, his father, who was a minister, um, was a, among the sort of elite intellectual and religious class of people who were gaining access to the first uh, good translations of uh, Indian spiritual texts and the first uh, sympathetic commentaries about Eastern religion that were coming in from Europe. So he okay. grew up with those books. 
All right. Well, we're going to come back and finish that uh, in just a few minutes, so stay tuned for more after the break. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness Research is transforming healthcare. Are you tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. The Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the Institute of Noetic Sciences, dedicated to expanding science beyond conventional paradigms. Founded by Apollo 14 astronaut Edgar Mitchell, IONS is a nonprofit research, education, and membership organization whose mission is supporting individual and collective transformation through consciousness research, educational outreach, and engaging in a global learning community in the realization of human potential. You can join that learning community at www.noetic.org. And today we're lucky to be able to talk to Philip Goldberg about his book, American Veda. And we're talking about how it is that we came to be powerfully influenced by Vedic teachings, Indian teach, Indian teachings, uh, ancient Indian teachings. And we were just before the break talking about uh, how Emerson, who was the forerunner of some of the early writers such as Thoreau and Walt Whitman, uh, began to uh, be influenced by Indian, Indian tradition. I sort of want to pick back up where we were there. Yeah, so so there we were. Emerson, as a boy, is not only surrounded by uh, these books, but his father uh, was one of the people attending or hosting salons where they were discussing Asian religions and Asian philosophy. Uh, so there were people who were drawn in this direction early on, and then as Emerson matured, 
uh, as a Harvard student and later as an ordained uh, minister himself, uh, the, the uh, Eastern books uh, became more and more influential. And uh, you could see in the development of what we think of as Emersonian philosophy and his own break with his traditional religion and his emergence as a, a superstar of the era, um, you could see the influence of these uh, teachings and these ideas. And, you know, one of his, well, certainly his most prominent uh, friend and pupil was Thoreau, who was younger uh, and influenced very much by Emerson. And, and Thoreau uh, was equally impacted by, by the teachings of India. When he was at Walden Pond, during that famous period that he, he, he chronicles in Walden, which, you know, millions upon millions of young people read every year. Mm-hmm. Um, he speaks about reading the Bhagavad Gita every day. He borrowed that book from Emerson. And he talks about being a yogi, probably the first person in American history to think of himself that way. So I often say that the impact of India on both Emerson and Thoreau and also Whitman was so profound, and they in turn had such a huge impact on America that if nobody had ever met a guru or no Swami had ever come to America, the impact would still have been big because their impact was that big. Absolutely, and we learned about them in school. Of course, I'm giving away my age here, but we learned about them in school as transcendentalists, and they, of course, I was always drawn to that, but uh, we didn't ever hear that they were influenced by Vedic tradition. You you seldom do even today, but there are more scholars who recognize that now than did in the past. Um, And those tend to be scholars who can recognize the influence because they, in turn, have been students of Indian philosophy and so forth. And so more people might be aware of it now. But you're also, you're right, even your experiences mirror today. A lot of people read Walden or they read uh, Emerson and it's assigned to them in school. And unless they read the parts of it where they explicitly refer to those influences, they might not know it. But it's there. It's discernible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so, you know, and then we have uh, people like Blavatsky, who was uh, one of the, uh, well, the founding person of theosophy, the theosophy movement, and Rudolf Stein. W- what did they get from Buddhist and Vedantic sources, that, ha- and what impact does that have on us now? Well, people like Madame Blavatsky and um, the other early founders of what, we, what came to be called New Thought, uh, including Mary Baker Eddy, who started um, Christian Science, and uh, Charles and Myrtle Fillmore, who started Unity Churches, and later Ernest Holmes, who started uh, Science of Mind or Religious Science. All these people were impacted by their own reading of these Eastern texts um, and by Emerson and Thoreau. They were the sort of next generation, Blavatsky and Mary Baker Eddy. They they were in the late 19th century, but and by the, by later in the in their lives, the availability of books from about and from India uh, in good translations were much more uh, available, and uh, teachers 
you know, from India started to show up in America. So they had even more access. And, of course, Madame Blavatsky ended up spending uh, much of her life in, in India establishing the theosophy, uh, theosophical society there. Yeah, and so and and her impact has been both felt and not felt by because there's been so much criticism of her as sort of a, 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 a charlatan basically and uh yeah. and and so you know we but in spite of those fa- those facts this thing seems to subtly keep growing. Yeah, and of course you know many people have been accused of being charlatans and some of them were and uh, you know, but the impact of theosophy a hundred years ago was quite enormous uh, all over the world, and and some of these others as well. There's a lot of Christian scientists. They don't necessarily know there's anything Indian in um, in their founders' teachings, uh, but <coughs> but it's there, and the influence was there. It was kind of put aside, so to speak. Yeah, so is that part of the reason, would you say, why we it seemed that so many were ready to hear from Par, Paramahansa Yogananda? <coughs> yes, in fact, even before Yogananda, the first of the great teachers who came here was Swami Vivekananda about uh, 30 years before Yogananda came. And in both cases, a large uh, percentage of the people who were open to their teachings and drawn to them were people who had been influenced by Emerson and the uh, <coughs> Theosophical Society and other New Thought. Um, they were sort of the pioneers, the pioneering spiritual types or metaphysical types of the late 19th and early 20th century. So they were often the primary organizers and audiences for the early gurus who came here. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and that influence then began to sort of filter through and then take your time. I know you've got a cold and just, you know, if you need to get a drink of water, feel free to do that. I Um, am. (laughs) Yeah, good, good. Okay, so then let's fast forward to the 1950s and the beatniks came along and who would have thunk that the that the beatniks were influenced by eastern philosophy but obviously they were oh yes and well most people when they think of the beat poets particularly Allen Ginsberg Gary Snyder and Jack Kerouac um they think of them in the context of zen buddhism and that that's there's very good reason for that. They were all influenced by um particularly uh the two Suzuki's who are great teachers. Um and they're not related, just two different Japanese teachers, Zen teachers named Suzuki at the time. And they were reading Zen and studying Zen. But it's also true that uh, Ginsburg in particular was heavily influenced by the what we think of more as the Hindu uh, tradition, Ginsburg spent some time in India early on, and um, later uh, got very much in, uh, enamored of uh, Sanskrit chanting, especially when the Hare Krishna people uh, came to New York and then San Francisco. He would be found uh, chanting with them. So he he had his Buddhist orientation. But there was uh, a side of him that loved the devotional chanting. And these influences of Buddhism and 
what we think of as Hinduism, they kind of interacted, and people who were spiritually open-minded and questing and seeking, they drew from both traditions. So you see traces of it in their poetry, and you see in Allen Ginsberg the sort of public figure, the provocateur. You see a lot of it in his public appearances, especially back in the uh, heyday of the 60s. Yeah, and didn't uh, Kerouac write some of his own cones? Yeah, I think he did. And, and you know, books like Dharma Bums, you know, you see a lot of strong uh, Buddhist influence there. And Gary Snyder, to this day, you know, is writing poetry that's very Buddhist-oriented. In fact, I was at the American Academy of Religion meeting last November, big gathering of academics in the field, and they gave him, you know, their uh, one of their big awards for his, you know, lifetime of of writing on uh, Buddhist themes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and then most of us know that the Beatles turned to Eastern religion and influenced their followers to explore the same. What we don't know is why this happened this way. Why? <laughs> I mean, I, th- I think we we understand that the Beatles had their own personal issues and crises that came up and made them want to turn to something deeper. But we don't understand the whole phenomenon of why it just like took over like wildfire. Can you explain that? Yeah. In fact, you know, I've. I've been giving talks on, on based on American Veda all over the country, and I, when I have time, I run through the whole history and I show slides and all that. When I get to the Beatles, everything changes. Even young people who weren't born at the time, they you know, there's something about the Beatles. So I now give talks and presentations just about the Beatles and oh, their wow. role and their role in this whole transmission. I call it the Beatles transmission. It's phenomenal. And, and I have to tell you, the impact of it, and I'm old enough to have been influenced by it. I was around at the time. But I didn't realize how enormous it was until I started researching the book. It, it was just, you could not escape knowing that the Beatles had learned to do transcendental meditation, and then a few months later that they were going to India and were in India uh, it was all over the news, and that's when when meditation started to become legitimized and words like mantra and guru and ashram entered the vocabulary. This was a huge watershed moment in the spiritual history of the, of the West. Um, and the antecedents of it are very similar to the influence of uh, the 60s on so many other people, not just you know the Beatles and the Beatniks and all that, but the '60s were a, a, a huge upheaval and a kind of spiritual revolution. I mean, the, the short story is that George Harrison first uh, discovered the sitar on the set of the movie Help when they were when they were filming it, and he liked the sound and he introduced it, and most people heard it for the first time on Norwegian Wood. And then he sought out Ravi Shankar, the great sitarist, to study the instrument. And Ravi Shankar, being uh, a traditional Indian musician, uh, uh, taught him that there's a spiritual underpinning to the music, gave him books to read, introduced him to swamis in India and so forth. And, uh, you know, George was already ripe for spirituality. There was, you know, part of it was the 
LSD experiences that they and so many people had in earlier in the 60s, and the sense that there were higher realms of consciousness to experience and safer ways and more reliable ways to do it than with drugs. Absolutely. And so the search was on. All right, then, so there we go. I'm going to stop you right there. We're okay. going to come back in just a minute right after the break. Stay tuned. You want to hear this part. Don't miss it. is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming health care. Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Be visionary. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today to Philip Goldberg about his book, American Veda, from Emerson and the Beatles to Yoga and Meditation, How Indian Spirituality Changed the West. And we were talking during the break about, uh, you know, both of, both of Phil and I both lived through this time with the Beatles. And I think it was a very exciting and interesting and scary and, you know, uh, a fascinating time. Uh, and we were talking about how that happened and how that evolved. And I was telling him that, uh, George was always my favorite of the Beatles, and I'm sure everybody's got their favorite. But George has not been necessarily, to my knowledge, been given credit for being the one to sort of step into Indian religion. John is usually given the credit, and we were just talking about that. So I want to, I want to. We ended our break with, with the search was on. So let's let's talk about that search. <laughs> yeah, well, it was George that was the, the prime catalyst for this, and he. It turned out to be the most uh, sincere and consistently uh, spiritual of the four of them. 
um, you know, and even long after the Beatles broke up, you know, George, this was no passing fancy for George. He was about as Hindu as anybody in the West could be, and, you know, for the rest of his life, and in his solo career, you could see it in his lyrics and his all of his uh, interviews and so forth. So he was a very sincere seeker. But what, what, what ended up happening back when he started his uh, spiritual quest, and, and, and he was not alone. It's not like so many millions were seeking back then. Um, it was actually his wife at the time, Patty, who, when uh, in August of 67, heard that Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, the founder of uh, the Transcendental Meditation uh, practice, uh, was lecturing in London. He started to get better known at the time among young people, and so the Beatles went to see him. And that was, you know, a big historical moment, because overnight everybody now heard the Beatles were learning to meditate, and there was somebody called a guru, and, you know, all this stuff, and, you know, it was inescapable. And then a few months later, the four of them went off to India, which was even more remarkable. It's one thing to learn how to meditate on your own. It's another thing, if you're the most famous people in the world, to go off to an ashram and by the Ganges, and, you know, <laughs> when you really? could go anywhere. So this yeah. was a huge, huge deal, and it was the beginning of the um, the mainstreaming of meditation. Every you know, the millions and millions of young people then wanted to do what the Beatles did, learn to meditate, and uh, grown-ups took notice because, in many instances, the, you know, people's lives were transformed and for the better, and they cleaned up their act and got off drugs. And, you know, when, when John Lennon and George Harrison say, oh, yeah, well, we were into LSD, but that's not where it's at. We meditate now. Mm-hmm. You know, people take that seriously, and a lot of young people followed suit. And then that was, uh, you know, one of the great things that came out of that was uh, scientists, psychologists, and, and, and medical people started to do research on meditation because they saw, you know, something was going on. And that research, the first of which was published in 1970 in scientific journals, uh, led to, you know, the mainstreaming of, of Eastern spiritual teachings as forms of human development and medical practices and, and so on and so forth. It's a huge impact. Yeah, it is absolutely a huge impact. And, you know, I, it, it impacted academia, and you talk about that as well. I wonder in, uh, uh, if there has been an impact on management. I know that there's a lot of people today talking about something called authentic leadership, and I'm one of those people who teaches that in corporate training uh, when I do that work. And, and uh, you know, I do think that that, you know, the principles of the Vedic principles of, you know, choice and letting go and you know not trying to control other people and all that kind of stuff just is entirely different from the old western most motif which is you tell somebody what to do and they're supposed to do it and if they don't do it you fire them or you fire the person who told them to do it who couldn't get them to do it and that kind of thing well uh, there's something to that this is not to say that um you know leaders in india are an authoritarian 
you know, there's plenty of that in their tradition as well. And, you know, many Western people independent of of Eastern traditions have come upon more humane uh, and productive forms of management. Um, But you're right that it has had an impact. And one of the areas that's had a big impact is, again, starting back in the 70s when this research went on, the it, it it piggybacked on the scientific breakthroughs on the subject of stress and the ravages of stress and how stress was impacting people's health and not only their health but the bottom line because it was affecting productivity and it was affecting absenteeism it was affecting healthcare costs and so the research on stress overlap with the research on meditation so you find ever since people recommending uh, forms of meditation and stress reduction related forms of stress reduction in business circles and in corporate life so that had an impact the other impact is what you suggest that they're you know sort of more humane ways of managing people that might get more out of them mm-hmm. that affects the bottom line and their mental and physical well-being. And you're right, you can derive some of those principles uh, from, from you know, the principles that, that we think of as Eastern philosophy. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, that whole idea of, of, of tradition, Vedic tradition and science and how it impacted transpersonal psychology and of course, Wilbur and all those people that were involved in that transition has also to do with that thing that started with the studies of stress and and how how stress impacts us. But I've also noticed that, uh, and I want to talk about that uh, shift in a minute too. But I've also noticed that even today, even within the past five years, I think that um, all the the old traditional sort of more or less fundamentalist uh, archetype of Christian religion. Uh, has now begun to shift a little bit to allow people to begin to meditate. Whereas when I first started meditating 20, 25 years ago, it was, uh, you know, it was a sin. It was evil to meditate. It was of the devil. And now they've, yeah, you'll still that. hear some of that from real conservative fundamentalists. You know, they're, they're now, you know, saying the same thing about the, the physical practices of yoga. Um, but, you're right, there's a lot less of that now. But the larger um, story that you're, you're alluding to is the, the impact that the Eastern traditions have had on mainstream Christianity and Judaism. There are now millions of people practicing some form of Jewish or Christian meditation, most commonly uh, what we think of what was called centering prayer. Mm-hmm. All of those practices are, well, for the most part, they're either derived directly from Eastern practices, like centering prayer was was strongly influenced by the instruction manual of, of that uh, TM teachers used, and other forms of meditation are being. Uh, um, adapted from Buddhist forms of meditation. There are people practicing mantra-like forms of meditation 
using the language of their own tradition, like Jews doing using Hebrew instead of Sanskrit mantras. This is very commonplace now, but it's also opened up the floodgates to the exploration of contemplative Christianity in its traditional forms and Jewish mysticism and Kabbalah, because the East sort of um, was a catalyst for people saying, don't we have this stuff? Does the Eastern forms, does only Hindus and Buddhists have these things like meditation? Don't we have that? Well, yeah. we did. They were buried somewhere and not accessible, and the, uh, they're now being sort of uncovered and, and re, uh, reintroduced. Yeah, absolutely. People like Thomas Merlot are, are just really, you know, lots of people are studying his work now, and I think, uh, I don't know this, but I think he was probably very influenced by that that paradigm of Eastern religion and the self and, and, and God as uh, as part of the self, etc. Yeah, as God as, as an indwelling force uh, as opposed to some being external to the world. Um, that's a big part of it, the fact that, you know, that, that one can have the experience that uh, seemed to be only available to the mystics, mm-hmm. but that there may be systematic ways for anybody to uh, go deep within and ex- experience these um, inner states of, of what Christians would call the peace that surpasses understanding, yeah. uh, these sense of union with the divine. These are uh, commonplace uh, practices in, in the Eastern traditions, and they're now becoming uh, commonplace in the West. Yeah, and and isn't it interesting because if, I mean, we started off our talk today talking about whether or not the Eastern influence was more, and, and, and you, you were very clear to say we, we are overgeneralizing, but more uh, about the soul, and Western tradition is more about an externalized version of of the divine and and uh, how to make how to get with that external version and uh, isn't it I, I think it will be interesting to see over the next several years how we continue to evolve into this and maybe some kind of you know bl- blending of the external with the internal and wouldn't that be holism in itself I think you're right that's the direction things are going yep all right. Well, we're going to be back in just a minute to talk with more, to talk with Phil some more about American Veda. Don't miss this last section. We got to talk about where we're going now. The Seventh Wave Channel on the Voice America Network. The Institute of Noetic Sciences has been a pioneer and leading authority in the field of consciousness and healing for 38 years. We invite you to discover how you can transform your health or healing practice with ION's cutting-edge research into mind-body medicine and healing. For a limited time, you can receive valuable thank-you gifts when you support the Institute of Noetic Sciences research and educational programs. Just click the banner on this page to discover how consciousness research is transforming health care. The Mayan calendar tells us that we will be entering into a 260-day opportunity for us to engage in conscious co-creation with great spirit. How will we prepare ourselves for this exciting and unprecedented time in Earth's history? 
Peter Tong has dedicated over 20 years of his life's work to exploring that which is beyond understanding. Peter will help increase your awareness and education on this enlightening transformation in consciousness. Awakening to Conscious Co-Creation airs live Wednesdays at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on 7th Wave Network. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free. 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. And we're back talking today to Philip Goldberg about his book, American Veda. And we've been learning an awful lot about how it came to be that Eastern uh, uh, religions, uh, the, particularly the uh, Vedic traditions, have impacted us in so many ways, uh, both subtly and overtly. And uh, so I want to, before we go any further, though, Phil, I want you to tell the listening audience, if you will, about how they might connect with you or anything you've got going on that you'd like to share if you want to do that, um, my websites are uh, one is the title of the book AmericanVeda.com, um, and my personal site about me and all my other work and my other books is PhilipGoldberg.com. Philip with one L, um, and there's you know ways to contact me on the websites. I speak in different places. The weekend after next, I'm going to be in Atlanta, for example. I have a whole bunch of things scheduled there. and I'll be in Florida in in end of March and then New York in April. So, But my, my schedule and other information is all on the websites. Okay, good, good, good. And they can also go to Huffington Post and Elephant Journal and read your blogs. They can, and I hope they do, and comment. Okay, good. All right. All right. So, uh, I guess I want to talk just, I want to talk a little bit about transpersonal psychology, but, but before we go out, I want to also talk about where we're headed with this. So let's talk just a little bit about how Vedic traditions have influenced science and then, of course, led to transpersonal poly, uh, psychology in particular. Well, you know, a lot of that was centered around the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, for some reason, um, some of those early pioneers like Maslow and Aldous Huxley, Joseph Campbell, Alan Watts, um, and, and a lot of people who your listeners may never have heard of, but who were psychologists um, or psychiatrists who were not content with the the, the models that were then available about uh, human development and what's possible for human beings uh, as we grow and develop um, were heavily impacted by the teachings of the East, which they saw as models of higher development, higher 
states of consciousness. And those models became, uh, in their eyes, ways to elevate psychology. And the two worlds, East and West, started to uh, become combined and integrated. A lot of it developed around the Esalen Institute, beginning in the early 60s, and certain uh, organizations and institutions that developed in San Francisco. Uh, all, the, all the details are phenomenally interesting. They're all in my book, of course. But that's where a lot of it happened. And to this day, of course, transpersonal psychology institutions are mostly centered in the Bay Area. But it was that spirit that we're here exploring the human mind and the possibilities of how to heal human beings and make the, help them live happier and more fulfilled lives. But the uh, repertoire available to people and the, the uh, understanding was very limited by sort of Freudian psychology and behaviorism. And that's when... Uh, humanistic psychology and transpersonal psychology were born in that sort of cauldron of, you know, what can we learn from the East? What can we learn from other disciplines? And that uh, transformed our understanding of human development. It gave us a whole variety of new practices for psychotherapists to use, new models for uh, psychology scholars to build upon. And uh, that process is, is still going on today. Uh, people, you mentioned Ken Wilber before. He was a, a huge force in this. People like Stanislav Grof and, and others back in beginning in the 60s and 70s. And so uh, that process of, of uh, further exploration and development goes on today. So psychology is vastly different now than it was 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Where we were able to explore the deeper regions of consciousness instead of just trying to change someone's behavior. Yeah. So, okay, what is our task now? What? What? Okay, we've come this far. What is our task now? Well, I don't know that there's one task. I think this, you know, the sort of wheel has been set in motion and it's rolling. And the process of evolution is what it is, and it's not going to stop. There will, there's opposition to this sort of evolving spirituality, uh, evolving ways of understanding human life and exploring individual potential. But the certain trends that we've been discussing, they're just going to accelerate. You, it'll take different forms, and the forms will be are very unpredictable. No one would have predicted 15 or 20 million people going to yoga classes. Mm -hmm. That's one of the forms it's taken. It's taken many others. It's infiltrating psychology and medicine and all these other fields of life. But when you look at the trends in, in research on spiritual attitudes or religious uh, participation, you see a discernible trend toward Emphasis on inner experience, people taking charge of their own spiritual lives, people being open to exploring, to learning from various traditions, to having their own individual path. Not that they're superficial and sh sort of dilettantes, 
but that they're serious seekers and they don't want to be limited or identified with the usual labels. And you see this whole thing of spiritual but not religious or resistance to uh, uh, identifying with one particular institution. Much more with the younger generation than it was even with the baby boomers. And so this spirit of self-exploration and the, the understanding that um, the self, the, indiv- the deepest part of the self, is divine and this is at one with the uh, larger cosmos and spirit of the universe, uh, that form of spirituality is just going to get more and more popular. And either the conventional religions will take advantage of this and incorporate it into their own perspectives and start to question some of their own dogma, or they'll just sort of die out. And, you know, the churches and conventional synagogues and churches will just have fewer and fewer people going to them. Yeah. I think about. I often think about that when when I think about. There's a passage in actually in the New Testament in the Gospels where Jesus talks about. Uh, you see where these stones are. This temple will no longer be standing one day. And I think, you know, about that. And I wonder, of course, who knows what he really said, and you know all that. But but yeah, yeah. you know the idea is a metaphorical for you know one day this this thing that we call religion is not necessarily going to exist in any form that we can recognize it as a religion. And I'm not talking about Jewish religion or, or, or Judaism or Christianity or Hinduism or any of that. I'm talking about religion in general, that we will evolve to a place of of uh, more of an acceptance of ourselves as divine beings, and then we don't need religion. Well, that depends. Now, a lot of what religion conventionally uh gives people is important community tradition all that so they'll either adapt and allow this wave of spirituality into it or spiritually of all interested people will find it elsewhere they'll form different communities and so forth all right well thank you so much phil for being on the show today i've really enjoyed talking to you and i really recommend this american veda and stay tuned in next week we're going to be talking some more about the depth of your soul. And uh, uh, remember, and we're March 14th, we've got Brian Weiss coming to the show. So we want to be here for that. Um, and just remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.